The Interchange is brought to you by Jinko Solar, a leading solar panel manufacturer and energy storage integrator. Publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange, Jinko Solar has deployed 100 gigawatts in 160 countries globally, including more than 15 gigawatts in the U.S. As a global leader with strong regional focus, Jinko Solar has a sales office located in San Francisco, California, and a manufacturing facility in Jacksonville, Florida, with over 300 employees available to provide customers with timely, local service. Jinko Solar now offers energy storage for a variety of residential, CNI, and utility projects. To learn more about Jinko's Eagle Storage Solutions, visit www.jinkosolar.us/interchange. We're in the midst of a new era of the space race. In this episode of The Interchange Recharged, we'll be blasting off into the realms of sustainable space travel. Is it possible? Let's find out. One, two, Instead of countries and governments fighting for dominance to a televised audience, we now see billionaires and tech companies live streaming their developments on Twitter. Space programs are now being funded individually and privately, kicking open the doors of opportunity. With the rise in popularity of civilian air travel, the more environmental impact it will have. Combine this with an exploding global population that will require more satellite communications and countries increasing their satellite defense systems, we could see the frequency of space launches increase exponentially. This will no doubt lead to more frequent emissions. I would love to say in sort of five, ten years' time, uh, Skyrora has managed to get a launch which is carbon neutral. Derek Harris is the CEO of Ecosine, the fuel division of the startup Skyrora. There's a lot of things that can be done to sort of make you that way. Their vision is to meet the growing demand for small satellite launch vehicles in order to provide cost-effective and responsive access to space. Beyond space travel and satellites, Ecosine can be a turning point for aerospace fuel and travel. Is their model viable? Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, David. You know, this is a topic that I find really interesting, uh, mainly because I'm somewhat of a space nerd. Uh, and I have been one ever since I figured out in, in high school chemistry how orbits actually work. But why don't you give us a little overview of Skyrora and Ecosine? and how you guys are operating in the energy transition space. Yeah, so I think we need to look right back at the start, which for ourselves wasn't too long ago. It was only around five years coming up for six that Skyrora sort of came about. And the whole mission statement behind it to start was, was to help supply orbital rides for small satellite vehicles. But what we looked at was what could we do that's not already been doing being done by Rocket Lab or the US. And with the UK market being very young and up and coming, we, we saw the chance that we could take a look at to try and make our launches slightly greener than the old technology that was out there. And we pushed towards that. And that's allowed us to do some investment and to produce what the product, which is Ecosine, which is the fuel that we're using instead of kerosene. And it's a sustainable aviation fuel that it can be used as. But it's just for us the first stage to try and sort of make our vehicle that little bit greener uh, to help launch the satellites going up. So tell me, how does your your fuel reduce the emissions? Because I mean, my understanding is that 120 rocket launches using the RP-1 kerosene fuel uh, currently being used by like SpaceX emits about the same equivalent of uh, carbon emissions as the aviation industry does in an entire year. 
So what does this fuel do differently to help reduce that? Well, a large part of this is you need to take a look at the entire life cycle. So there, that was a great figure and stat that you've given out there about the sort of 160 launches versus the aviation market. What we're not taking into account there is the life cycle for the product being taken out of the ground, being dealt with, going through all the refineries, being taken to the various airports or various launch pads. So for ourselves, the products that we were making this out of is plastics which have been made and normally go to incineration or landfill. So by giving them a second lease of life, it allows us to cut down on basically another sort of variation of having to pull these fuels out of the ground. So at the moment, we're already in a bit of a winner. Ones that would go to landfill would have a set amount of emissions. I can bring up those numbers in a few moments for you if you wish. And the ones that go to incineration obviously have a lot more CO2 as well when they're burned. So for us, we allow it to go through our three-stage process, which we have used some of the carbon from it as part of the system. It's going through the three steps. And then we also have carbon capture as part of the system as well to try and capture the remaining carbon that is being released. So that allows us to reduce that footprint there. But on the other side, when we go to use that fuel, because it's basically went through refinement again, it takes out a lot of the nasties from it. So we're finding the reduction in things like sulfur is quite a big jump from what it would be in your normal refined fuels that you're getting for RP1, for example. So for normal RP1, I believe it's something like 0.0001 milligram per kilo of fuel. Whereas for ourselves, it's 0.000007. So it, it is rapidly reduced. And we're finding similar results with the carbon. We've just had our second set of lab data back, which is saying uh, the first set said it was about 45% cut on carbon monoxide and dioxide. Uh, the second one was a little bit less uh, and was showing between the 30 and 40%. And again, with this product being at TRL level five, we hope to see that settle around the 40% reduction mark. And where are you getting the plastics for the recycling? I mean, we, we produce something like 220 million tons of plastics a year. And a large percentage of that, I think it's around 40% or 90 million tons, is actually leaked into the environment. So where are you getting these plastics to be able to recycle in, in, under this method? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first place that we wanted to look at and where we started off our project is with our local authorities, what you may call your chambers of commerce in the States. In the UK, we have landfill taxes, which previous years have been around £120. So I think that's roughly around $150, give or take, per tonne. But that will go up to £200 this year again, maybe about 230 US dollars So we've been speaking with the local authorities about helping them be able to take these types of plastic in, which they normally never had any uses for, and then we can take them from them. So it allows us to make a profit of the, for not having to buy these materials. And it also helps the local authorities become or work towards their net zero goals as well. And what process do you use for the recycling? I mean, I, I know that mechanical recycling is the premier recycling method, but it, it also is limited in terms of what types of materials can go into that. So walk us through a little bit about the process you guys employ. Yeah, well, I think at the very moment in time, the, the number one thing we need to point out, there's only one plastic that we cannot use, which is PVC. 
unfortunately you use pvc and for those that are better chemists out there than i am it begins to produce noxious gas which would take out the entire workforce i also double up doing hr work so i don't want to fill out that paperwork so we make sure pvc does not get in there but to be honest with you most recycling is done by hand at the moment we are talking to two or three groups in scotland and universities who are looking at ways to make sensors that can sort of be placed on these conveyor belts which will help us separate it automatically rather than by hand but at this present moment in time a large part of this is all done by hand so when i done a recent visit to one of the local authorities they were basically when it was coming in they had tins getting put down one pile they had polystyrene going down another pet going down another everything was very manual loaded but we're looking at some of the universities to see how we can make that better and work hand in hand with our technology and what about the process of breaking that down? Yeah, so the process of breaking it down is actually, it's one that has started off and been used before, or at least the first part of this is. So the first part is using pyrolysis, then going on to distillation, going through the sort of cooling systems, and then using a hydro treatment. So it's a large part of why we've been able to accomplish this is the catalyst that we're using, which is our secret sauce, if you'd like in that regards, which is helping us to do this. So we've seen a lot of good work on the pyrolysis side so far with rubber and other plastics being used. We've just built upon this knowledge and sort of taking it a step further. And the pyrolysis uh, process breaks it down into the molecular components of, of oil and gas, right? And that's what you're able to use for the, the rocket fuel, correct? That's correct. So that allows us to break it down into various components and fractions of different types of fuel types. So for every 1,000 kilograms or one ton of waste plastics, we get a usable 650 kilograms of usable fuels that come out of that. The rest of that weight, so which will be around 350 kilos, is made up of some of the gases which go back into the actual process. So the gases that are produced help to power the process to help keep it a sort so it's not using more power than it's actually generating. And then the rest of it is sort of like a coke or an ash, which over here is used quite a lot in sort of fertilizer is probably the best term for it. I was going to say manure, but fertilizer is probably the best term. And my understanding is this type of chemical process versus the mechanical recycling process is a lot more energy intensive, obviously more emitting than, than the mechanical process. But you, you mentioned that you've got the carbon capture technology as well to help reduce that. But how will this kind of reduce the overall emissions? Because there are critics obviously out there that will say, well, we're, we're still relying on oil and gas, right? I mean, you're, you're taking waste but it's still kind of a closed loop there to relying on oil and gas for, for this, which will ultimately burn and create emissions. Yeah, and, and they are correct in that way. But I think what they're needing to look at at the moment is we're giving a second life to these products. So while it is a sort of closed loop with that, these products would normally be left in landfill to disintegrate over thousands of years, go to incineration plants where the actual release of the emissions is much higher from it just being burnt for lower amounts of energy. If we're being honest at this moment in time, there are futures coming in. We're seeing leaps and steps at universities from the UK, from the US, Netherlands that I speak to quite regularly that are looking at cleaner and other ways that we can potentially have fuels in the forward, in the future. 
But I think what we're doing just now is taking that step forward because there's no middle ground at the moment. We either have our full on dirty fuels or the, our hopes are basically being pinned on the future technologies. No one has decided to take this step in the middle to sort of bridge that gap as such. And I mean, obviously the, the waste, uh, my understanding also is that some of the waste that you use in the recycling process comes from these large waste islands that we have in the ocean. How is that going to work? Yeah, so that's part of the EcoScene. So one of the things with EcoScene is Skyrora have invented it to use it for rockets. So for me, I, I, I like to think it's a great little circular thing. If you think we know more about the transatlantic trash patch and the Pacific trash patches because of Earth observation satellites, imagine being able to put up the Earth observation satellite on the same plastic it's observing. To me, that would just be amazing. But on the same stroke, we take a look at the other sort of sectors that we've got there. We have aviation, we have maritime, and maritime fuel is known as one of the cleanest, but it is still quite a dirty fuel. So the fact that our ecosystem process can be placed within sort of skid-based products and could be placed upon a ship. So if these are merchant ships, for example, going from the US to Japan or things like this, they could be there and they could literally be picking up plastic as they're going through these patches and then sort of using it as long as they've got the technicians on there to run the system. They could be using their own fuel from what they're basically collecting on their journey, which will help cut their costs down as well and help start. And I think that's a key term, start, to try and clean up some of the waste and the mistakes that we've done on Earth. And those patches are, are pretty enormous. I mean, I know the one in the Pacific is like twice the size of Texas. So, I mean, that's a lot of feedstock for your process. I, I think, as I said at the moment, one of the big things there is if we don't try and do something, and it's the versatility of EcoScene. So this is why, as I said, we designed it for ourselves for this. And we thought, well, it would, it's a nice little thing to keep for ourselves, a unique selling point that it's a, a reproduced fuel to sort of launch our rockets on. But that's when we started to look further afield and started to see, well, what if we can get this qualified for aviation? So you've, you've said there the amount of emissions that are done off 160 launches to the entire year's worth of sort of aviation fuel. What if we can start to make a dent in there and get some of the small air taxis? I'm not sure what you would call them over there, charter, uh, charter planes, things like this. But if we could start with them and have them do this, that's a, a slight decrease in the footprint of the aviation as well. So it's it, what's got me really excited about this is the actual potential. It's not just a space sector that could be affected and helped by this. It can f go into the aviation. It can go into the maritime as well. Yeah, that was actually my next question is the applicability of this process and technology to other areas besides rocket fuel. Explain a little bit more about that. How, how do you see that evolving to aviation and maritime? Yeah, so the whole process that goes through, basically the, the difference in the fuels that people use between Jet A1, RP1, is the purity and the length of the hydrocarbons. So by going through the hydro treatment and adding in the additives, these are the two things that differentiate from both products. So we can do that during the system and it just basically means we need to tweak what additives we're putting in, what ingredients. So it's basically like making a, a good cake or a good beer. It depends what ingredients you put in to what you're going to get out the, on the backside of the product. So, for example, for us, if we really want rocket fuel, 
it, the best thing for us is polystyrene, the type of thing that protects your TV and your fridge freezer when they arrive from being delivered. If we were to use a full ton of that, that would be the, the one that we would need to do the least amount of work with to get rocket fuel out of. Whereas if we were to do it with old sort of in-out mail trays, plastic trays, things like this, that would take a bit more work and things. So it, it gives us this, that ability to do that. So it's all about the magic ingredients, really. So the, the catalyst and the additives done on the backside of the hydro treatment and the distillation on it. And that packaging film is actually much more difficult to recycle via mechanical recycling. You need the chemical recycling to be able to use that type of waste. Yeah, at present, things, well, I believe when I last looked, and this was 2020, was the stats on this, that only 2% of polystyrene worldwide was being recycled, which is just absolutely bonkers to me. If you think about it, and I'm sure Amazon does the exact same over in the US as it does here, you get a box the size of a shoebox when all you're actually ordering is like a pack of AA batteries or something, and it's packed with packing peanuts. If you're lucky, you get the dissolvable packing peanuts, but if not, you've now got all this polystyrene just sitting waiting around. But in Scotland and the UK, one of our large industries is fishing. So I'm, I'm sure you've probably get Scottish salmon and things like that in the shops. This is all basically passed around the country, passed around Europe and around the world in polystyrene cases. Nine times out of 10, you maybe get two or three uses out of them before they, that's it, they're off to landfill. So we've been speaking with these sort of companies as well to say, well, what if we could do something with that? And they're saying, well, at the moment we are paying £200 for the tonne plus X amount. They're saying, if we could work with you, would you reduce that price? Well, for us, obviously, that's us getting our feedstock in. So it's, it's again, for us, you to get paid to get that feedstock, it already starts to make financial sense for us as well. And what about the issue with soot in the upper atmosphere as it relates to the rocket launches? I know that that's a concern. How does this impact the, the soot? Does it reduce the amount for the rocket launches or is it just very similar to what the existing rocket launches are deploying? Yeah, due to the specific makeup of our fuel and oxidizer, we use high test peroxide or hydrogen peroxide first that it may be known as, as well as this. So it does help reduce the amounts of soot that's coming out when it's burning for that purpose because of the reduced amount of carbon dioxide and monoxide in that refining process. However, one thing that we have done is in the UK, especially recently, we have done basically meet the stakeholders is probably the best way to say it. So as part of the Scottish Space Leadership Council, we went out and we met the likes of Friends of the Earth, Extinction Rebellion, I'm not sure if you have them over there, Greenpeace and then basically anyone else we invited almost anyone that would have anything to say about space and the environment to see what their worries were funnily enough what you've mentioned one of their worries is well we've never launched anything we've got beautiful clean air in Scotland you're now talking about launching having 16 to 20 launches a year within Scotland what is that going to do in the upper atmosphere is as you say it is the carbon so one of the things we've taken out of that and sort of working with the leadership council and the local government is to see about getting studies to try and get actual solid figures on this. So we can then say, well, actually, this is what's happening. This is the figures that are coming from our engines. This is the figure that are coming from other engines. What can we do? And then at this point, we hope to sort of 
push that back into our R&D center to see if there's anything else we can do with the product. In response to some of the critics about still relying on oil and gas and having this be a, a carbon emitting process, I mean, it sounds like the plan is, is look, we've, we've got a lot of waste that's detrimental to the environment right now. So we're going to use that to something that is really necessary. I mean, rocket travel, not necessarily the tourist trips, but I mean, look, everybody wants their cell phones, everybody wants their, their television. And so the satellite network is, is critically important to the globe. And you're saying, look, eventually we can get to a, a stage where rocket emissions are, are zero in some capacity. But this is, the, like you said, the first step in terms of filling in that gap from you know, A to Z, where Z is zero emissions, is you're just going along the path to help reduce the emissions by using existing waste in the environment and to reducing the emissions that come from the use of the fuel that comes out of that recycling process. Yeah, that's 100% correct there. And it is, it's just a small step. I th- we're really seeing big, big steps going forward in space. If you look at the last five, 10 years, the things that have been done because of space, the technologies that have came forward because of the space sector, it's really driven a lot of different things. It always pains me to say SpaceX when we go to it, because you, can, you everyone always points to them, but it's a perfect example of what can be done and what can be sort of pulled out of there. So with everything that Musk has done with putting into reusable launchers, things like this, people, people would have never thought of this other than in sci-fi novels years ago. And without people that are willing to give it that little push and to try and break that barrier to what people think is normal, we, we will be stuck using these old school oils processes. So for me, Ecocene is a necessity to push forward. Because if we don't push it forward, who is then going to say, well, we need to do something better and find another way? And it's taking, a, taking advantage of the privatization of the space sector to further the energy transition really on a step-by-step basis. Yeah. And I think looking in, and well, I keep saying I think, so I do apologize on that. I know from talking with a lot of the universities, it's something that's now becoming key and You'll hear that we talk a lot to people because we really believe collaboration is the key to go forward. As I said, originally we, we designed this for ourselves, but then we thought, actually, we can collaborate with other sectors. We can collaborate with universities. How can we get this better? And that's where we want to go to. I would love to say in sort of five, 10 years' time, uh, Skyrora has managed to get a launch which is carbon neutral, zero carbon whatsoever. And I'm not talking about you're sort of greenwash carbon neutral because we've all seen it. We've all seen companies do that. We're carbon neutral and they don't take into displacement measurements and anything. There's a lot of things that can be done to sort of make you that way. But this is, a, we really want to do that. If, if we can't get there from a launch perspective, okay, let's put our hands up to it and own that. And this is why we had those meetings with, as I said, the likes of Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace and such, was because we want to know what they see the main problems is with space and with the environment for space. Because if, if no one speaks about it, how can we try and get an answer? And how about the cost of the fuel? How does it compare to regular RP1 from a cost standpoint, not, not only the, the feedstock, but the product? So the best part about this is that it does work out much, much cheaper. So when I was last looking using the U.S. Department of Defense's budgets, it was roughly about $11 a gallon for RP1. And we were working out we could produce 
eco scene coming in roughly about three three dollars a gallon, and that that was prior to basically finding out we could get our feedstock for free. So that was taking into account us having to buy feedstock in off people and sort of maybe charge or be charged for taking these plastics off someone. And is it 100% plastics? I mean, are there any additional additives in the process that you need to purchase or uh, part of the supply chain into the end product? Yeah, so the, the main key bits, as I said, is some of the aromatics that we need to put in for the variation for various fuel types you need them but the biggest part is the secret sauce catalyst as i keep referring to it's quite a common catalyst it's it's not something that's majorly expensive but i don't believe it's ever been used in this way before with the growing use of renewables such as solar, in our energy mix, the role of energy storage systems is more important than ever to ensure grid stability and reliability. Jinko Solar has you covered with battery storage solutions for grid edge to CNI and residential application. Jinko's new Eagle CS energy storage platform is a fully integrated turnkey AC coupled system featuring lithium iron phosphate for LFP batteries. It's scalable and fully configurable making it ideal for any CNI or utility application. Eagle CS features both container-level battery storage and modular solutions for maximum flexibility in system design. From microgrids to full-scale utility applications, Eagle CS has a solution and it's all backed by one of the most trusted brands in the renewable energy industry. Jinko's Eagle RS is a fully integrated DC-coupled residential energy storage system that features best-in-class safety with LFP battery chemistry, an intelligent US-based monitoring app, and a single wrapped warranty. Jinko's high-capacity storage system is ideal for homes that need more than a few hours of backup. The use of just one single hybrid inverter for both the solar and the storage energy conversion provides the best value for solar plus storage installations. Visit www.jinkosolar.us interchange to learn more about Jinko Solar's Eagle Storage products. You know, switching over to the policy side of the discussion, how are you seeing that environment impact what you're doing? I know the ESA has an initiative where they're really looking at the impact of space travel on the environment and, and also for space junk as well, how to effectively get rid of that, recycle that. And I know that's ongoing, but besides that, or even including that, what are you seeing from a policy standpoint to enhance what you guys are working on? And what do you think would be necessary going forward to continue to push this initiative along? That's a very good question there, David. And I think unification is possibly the best term for it. At the moment, there's a lot of different things out there, like the Paris Peace Forum. Ourselves, we we went out with what we call the Prospero Principles, which I'll come back to in a few moments. So you have all these, and you've got the United Nations Office for Outer Space and things. They've all got best practices out there, but nothing is down in black and white as legal or having that 100%. If you want to launch a satellite, if you want to launch a rocket, you need to adhere to this. So it, it needs that sort of functionality. Someone needs to take a step up and say, well, this is where the rule's going to lie for this. And obviously no one wants to do that because no one technically controls space, US, Russia, India, UK. Everyone would kind of feel if it was done on a governmental level that it could be a bit of a 
sort of overstep. But I believe in the future there is going to need to be and someone like the United Nations that will end up being agreed to be a regulator or sort of referee as such on this and they'll sort of draw the lines and the guidelines and these will have to be enforced to go up there. This is everything from your emissions. This is everything to what happens to the debris that's left there. That was the whole point behind the Prospero Principles, which I can go into just now. So back in 1971, when Black Arrow launched in the UK, uh, if, sorry, the UK rocket Black Arrow launched from Woomera in Australia, but it launched the UK satellite. And it was the only one to do so, and then they cancelled the programme. But the satellite was called Prospero. So Prospero is still up there uh, over 50 years later. It's not doing anything. It's not working. It's taking up an orbit space. So the three big questions are, whose responsibility is it? What should be done with it? And if we can bring it back, should we bring it back? So these are the sort of questions that we, we asked to the public as well. First of all, you've got the likes of Astroscale. We have a space tug that allows us to sort of act as a platform that could maybe help us capture Prospero. But is it up to us to bring it back? It's a satellite basically launched by the UK government. If we were to do that, are, are we then breaking a precedent that private companies can then start taking national satellites out of orbit? Not a law and something I want to get into. But these are the sort of questions we've been trying to push since we've came on the scene to try and get people to start speaking about because these are the sort of regulatory sides going forward that are going to need there. After all, I think it wasn't long ago you saw, I was, believe it was SpaceX and one of ESA's satellites almost on a collision course. Technically, okay, one was up there before the other, crossing orbits, there'll be some sort of liability there. But I know they do sort of war game on the legal sides over here in the UK and Europe. But again, it's not black and white. There's no regulations to say, well, actually, if you take out the satellite, it's your fault. It's up to you to then go and make sure that every little centimeter or screw and nut and bolt was collected so it doesn't sort of keep going and cause chaos for further launches and further orbits so i i believe from a regulatory point of view you you're going to find them looking at emissions going forward you're going to find them not only talking about net zero on earth but net zero in orbit and the responsibility of basically who who owns a satellite and who has to deorbit the satellite and who has a full sort of liability on it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, with the the further privatization of the space industry, I mean, I know that there were some initial issues and questions that had come up with SpaceX that that were worked through, but I think there's we're kind of in uncharted territory right now as more and more companies try to take advantage of this and you're going to come up with these questions that you just outlined that that need to be answered, but not only from kind of ownership responsibility standpoint but I think you're going to start seeing a little bit more drill down into the carbon emission standards, which I don't think people have really focused on on space because historically it's been just such a government-run industry that now uh, you're going to start seeing them focus a little bit a little bit more on it because I think the satellite network is going to continue to become a very critical piece of global communications. Yeah, you're completely right. Again, going back to Earth observation satellites and the data that they bring back, imagine you, you've you made this all singing and dancing satellite, which gives you SAR data, carbon data, and everything like that. And then you go into the equivalent of like a 1800s workhouse giving out pollutions just to get up there. It, it really kind of goes against what you're trying to do with as a company. So we're seeing that from satellite companies as well. They're now asking questions about, well, where is your supply chain from? 
not because they're worried about where the parts are coming from, but if you're ordering overnight parts from Japan or something like that, why are you burning that much carbon when you can get the same things in Italy or the UK or something like that closer? So I'm seeing a lot more people being a lot more stringent on everything that way at the moment, all the way down to the supply chain, as I said. And how did uh, Skyrora start, essentially from a funding standpoint? Yeah, so we were privately funded to start with, and that was by Vladimir Levikin, who is the CEO of Skyrora. And I came on as one of this, I think, third or fourth employees just at the startup time. And they were looking to, they saw a, a niche market because the UK was going to want to launch. And with Glasgow have, building the second most amount of satellites out with, I believe, out with the US, it was, well, we build our own satellites. We have a lot of data companies. We can bring the data down with companies like Dundee Star. All we're missing is a launch site and launchers. Vladimir, whose background was IT, decided, well, there's a gap in the market. Let's go and sort of said, let's do, let's build a rocket company. So Sky, Sky Rora was born from that moment, really. We got a small office, which is possibly smaller than the room that you're sitting in at the moment with five people then we went out and because we had the money there we were able to go and recruit the talent we wanted so normally what you'll find with companies is they'll have talent and they'll have a plan but they don't have any financial backing so i believe today vladimir's put in something like 35 40 million into the company so far to get us where we are that's taken us what we now have over 100 employees in under five years we've got three four sites we have a suborbital vehicle ready to go, our Skylark L, which is roughly about 11 metres tall and will go to about 130 kilometres. We're just waiting for a licence to launch that. And then we're hopefully going to be ready for our main vehicle XL by the end of the year, which is about 22, 23 metres in length and can take a payload of 315 kilograms. So being able to have that funding has allowed us to accelerate past being one of these companies that are just a PowerPoint. So this is what we would like to do. It's allowed us to sort of really go to town. And so but this is our hardware. This is our engine test site. And this has allowed uh, the UK government, the UK Space Agency and the European Space Agency to sort of buy in with us and to sort of help. So we recently won a grant from the UK Space Agency and ESA for building parts of the XL, first XL, but also for building the test stands. So it's it's been a big push forward since day one. And that's all came through basically Vladimir's ambition and private funding. And how about going forward? How do you see the financing needs as you continue to uh, expand and grow? Yeah, certainly. We're looking to go into a seed round, so our A seed round at the moment. Uh, I know our team is speaking with a few different people, including national institutions and overseas investors. And I believe it's between 20, about 28 million they're looking to raise in the Series A for that. And half of that is going to be guaranteed by Vladimir, is my understanding. He's looking to put a further 13 in. And then I think the next round when they go into Series B, if I remember the figures correctly, is something about 70 million, which is going to be the expansion of the workshops for mass production of the vehicles and such. And how are those discussions going? I mean, how are you seeing the funding environment? A number of guests we've had on here, it's been consistent that over the past 18 months, we've seen much more interest from financial institutions or financial backers, VC funds, 
coming in. And also the risk premium seems to be coming down as well, because this is something that they take a longer term view. And I think the risk around longer term with the energy transition technologies is becoming more solidified. Yeah, I think you're right. I've seen a lot more VC and angel investors sort of coming to the forefront and speaking with us now and asking, are you going to be opening the Series A? As I say, we've also got the national governments and such having a look to see what investment could be done from a national infrastructure point of view. And I think I believe a lot of this is coming through because of how we're pushing forward. So as I say, we push forward to make EcoScene because we wanted to be more environmentally friendly. We've pushed forward to make our a new 3D printer, which now gives us a two meter by two meter base for printing our engines on, which as far as I'm aware is possibly, if not the, is one of the largest 3D printers in the world. But it also has a robotic arm that allows it to machine it at the same time. So we, we're not wasting time having to take the engine out from being printed to machine. It can be printed, then machined on the same machine, if that makes sense. And this sort of technology as well is sort of pushing up the asset value of the company and what people are interested in investing in. So on the technology uh, surrounding recycling, I mean, how scalable and how viable is that? It's very early, as I said, with it being a TRL level five for the technology. We've managed to take it from being able to deal with a thousand kilograms a day up to 3000 kilograms a day, uh, which is just one set unit. So at this present moment in time, that's where we're limited. What we would like to see is to be able to push that one system up to maybe 10,000 per day. At the moment, what we could do is we could line three up next to each other to do that. But what we're hoping to do is to see how far we can push it. But we need to be careful. After speaking with experts from the likes of Ineos and Shell and such, it come, what they have warned us is it comes to a stage that once you move from sort of small batches, you then start talking hundreds of millions to sort of start your distillation processes and things because of this the scale that will be required on it. So I believe the scale up is there. Uh, as I said, our, we went from 1,000 kilos to 3,000 kilos per day, or three ton per day. And we're hoping to sort of move that up to 10 with the demonstrator plant that we're hoping to build in the near future. But beyond that, we would need to sort of check how once we get to the 10,000 and what the costs are coming in at, how the production and the quality is coming out at, uh, to make sure if the, any more scalability to increase that size and input would be able to happen. So it seems, I mean, the jump from current capacity to what you need to to scalable is pretty significant uh, and it require a partnership with some of the industry refiners. Because I know like Chevron Phillips uh, has a has a facility for this type of chemical recycling. Yeah, I, I would say so. We, we have loosely touched base with some of the big companies, as I said, over here uh, for that. And that's what they've said. It's it would need to be a complete partnership with them. At the moment, they believe at TRL level five that the technology is still a little young for them to sort of put any proper investment into. They would like it to see, well, the, the gentleman I was speaking to, I'll leave his name out and his company out for obvious purposes, was saying we are hoping to fly SKL this year, the Skylark L, using EcoScene. And at that point, that'll help prove out the flight capability of it and at that point he wants to revisit those conversations because then it's been not only proven on engines 
on the ground during static testing, but it's been flight tested as well. What other companies do you see out there doing this type of work? I mean, I know from a competitive standpoint, there's Orbex, which uh, uses a biodiesel process that I think it said it reduces emissions by about 86% from the normal rocket launch, but that's that's due to the process employed and not the actual launch itself. Who Who do you see out there doing similar type initiatives? Well, I've spoken with NASA, I've spoken with ESA, both are pushing forward to see those fuels, but the big, big organizations that are pushing it, you ha- you do have some of the oil companies that are putting some money into it. They're putting a couple of million pounds here, a couple of million pounds there, which when you're trying to start a fuel revolution, isn't a huge amount of money. What we are seeing, though, is I want to point out the likes of Edinburgh University, St. Andrews University and Glasgow University, I have close ties with. And they they are all looking to see, well, what can we do? They're look, I've, I've had people talk to us from everything from algae to nuclear to basically using hydrogen and things. So not all of them are suitable, but they're having these ideas and these are the next generation. And I think the best thing for me, there was this young student, her name was... Uh, I believe it was Michelle who is currently studying, I think it was at St. Andrews, and she was saying she'd saw what we had done with EcoScene and she did, she'd, like yourself and bringing it up earlier, she thought, well, it's not ending a problem, but it's a step. She says, well, what could we do next? What could, is there anything else that we could burn? And so she's saying, she, oh, she's looking into sort of biofuels now. So whether it be out from sort of waste foods or waste byproducts from other things to see if these can be used as suitable fuels. So I really think that the universities need to be better funded for this, if that makes sense. So maybe whether that's coming from the corporations or the local governments and the governments for that, I think that those are where we're going to start to see the changes from. It'll be this, now, the, nowadays, the small little changes from the people that are looking to change the footprint going forward. So more of an investment and focus uh, on the technology to be able to utilize additional sources of waste into the process and make it into something reusable, such as rocket fuel or aviation fuel, which will you know, continue with also a technology on the, on the backside, reduce emissions going forward. That's it. If, if we had spoke to you 10, 15 years ago and said, you know, you can get us in 15 years time, you'll be able to get sunglasses made out of waste plastic, or you'll be able to build a house out of Lego blocks, or live in a freight container. All these ideas 10, 15 years ago would have been laughed out. Laughed out. I do think there's a, a big change on focus now. People are looking more long term. So I think without being funny or trying to be too funny, I believe people are trying to avoid being Wally from Disney uh, and sort of really look forward to changing into something better. I'll be honest, sometimes during this conversation, I had the Wally movie in my in my mind, you know, just thinking about the satellite junk and 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 everything. So what uh, you know, I know you have the the flight test coming up on that, but what what's next for Ecoscene? and where do you see the company in you know five or ten years and the impact on the environment? Well, if I do my job right, uh, I would like to think in five or ten years that Ecoscene will become a sort of well-known name throughout the world. Uh, I, I don't expect it to be your likes of BP, Shell. Uh, you could drive down any highway and get your petrol from, for example, your Chevrons. I'm hoping it's going to become 
common use in, as I said, the charter airlines and things like this, where people are looking to make a difference where they can. I hope to help get this adopted with maybe not just maritime sort of traders, but possibly even looking at the military side of things as well. So the military's vehicles are often out at sea for fueling purposes. Or could they have any use with this? So opening up conversations with the likes of DARPA and things like this in the, the UK version of that to see would this technology have a use anywhere along those lines. So I think we just need to look at the the moon. When we went to the moon, we've left umpteen bags worth of trash up there. And that was only from half a dozen people going to the moon. Imagine what the amount of trash we leave when we go to the likes of Afghanistan, Iraq, and we have these bases. Most of it just gets burned, taken out back and burned sort of thing. So if we can give them something there to help run generators for the local villages and things like this by reusing their waste, that gives an avenue for us to look at. So these are just a few of the ideas that are sort of there uh, that I would hope to see us start to push into over the next five to 10 years. Well, there's definitely no shortage of, of waste for your feedstock. And so it's good to see that coming up with additional uses uh, for that rather than incineration, because incineration obviously is the worst uh, for the environment. So anything else we can do besides that would, would definitely be helpful. And, I mean, the applicability to, to aviation, you mentioned the defense, it's something that I've always been interested in. Uh, particularly around the aviation industry. I've got a particular tie to aviation. I've, I've grown up in the aviation industry. And so how they decarbonize has always been you know, something I've been looking at because we've been focused on the renewable sources such as wind and solar and then, and then the battery storage and what's the impact on the grid. But what's lesser discussed is aviation and maritime. And so that's something that I like to continue to explore because I think that that is going to be very impactful. Uh, to the energy transition, but it's also very challenging. So it's really good to see companies like yourselves looking at that and how they could transition uh, those industries as well. So how how can we keep up with uh, Ecoscene and, and Skyrora and what's next for you guys and, and how you guys evolve going forward? Well, the next big thing for ourselves will be the Space Symposium in Colorado, uh, which is on the 2nd of April. We will be there uh, myself and a few of my colleagues. So if anyone is there that's listening, please feel free to come by and say hi. But if you want to follow our journey, we're on social media. Uh, so if you search for Skyrora on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I'm sure we even have a TikTok, though I can't really tell you what TikTok is because I'm closer to 40 than I am 14. But we do seem to put all our videos out of our local tests and launch, and we, we're quite open on our socials about our progress. Unfortunately, I can definitely tell you what TikTok is because that is played in our house by the kids on their phones probably 15, 16 hours a day. <laughs> well, th this has really been an interesting conversation and I appreciate your time and, and, and coming on the show. Uh, and we look forward to continue to see how Ecoscene evolves and grows and the future of space travel. No, that's great. Well, thank you very much for inviting me along, David. And if you're ever over in the UK, please look us up. We'll be happy to host you. As of right now, space travel does not have a large environmental impact on a global scale, but on a smaller per capita scale, space travel is 100 times more wasteful than your normal transatlantic flight from New York City to London. Companies like Ecoscene and Skyrora are building the necessary technology so space has the chance of being sustainable. I'm David Banmiller, and this is the Interchange Recharged. Thank you, Derek, for giving us your time. 
We also urge our listeners to follow Ecoscene to stay up to date with their progress. Also, don't forget to tweet and message us with any topic or guest recommendations you might have. Thanks for listening. Talk to you guys next time.